Um, I'm really uh, just, again, thankful for just this letter that Paul has given us and the opportunity that we have to look at what it is that the Galatians were going through and how it also pertains to our own walk in life and living out this call that we've really been asking ourselves the question the entire time, how is the gospel calling us to live? What is the gospel urging us to do in our life day to day to day? And we've seen that in our walk through the letter to the Galatians that Paul has revealed to the Galatians and thus revealed to us many different ways in which the gospel is calling us to live. One of the most important ways that we've come to see here is that one of the ways in which it's called us to live is that we are to remember gospel truth. And we've been saying that here is God's work, not mine, but we know it to be so much more and so much deeper and so much richer than that. But that is the basis upon everything that we do going forward is knowing that it is God's work, it is not mine. And in the same manner, this gospel call is to live by grace, knowing that it is a gift given, not one earned or one that we have to work for. And in the same way, the gospel is calling us to unity with each other. That The gospel unifies us not only in the church, but it unifies us around the globe to all who have called upon the name of Jesus. And in the same manner as we've received all these things, the gospel is also urging us to reject this idea that we have to work for our own righteousness, that there is some way in which we can work or obtain our own righteousness, and yet we know that the truth of the gospel is to live for Christ, that he imputed us his righteousness. And another thing that we've learned is that we are to live as children of God, knowing that in all things that God has adopted us as his sons, that he called us his own, and that when he looks at us that he sees Christ, he doesn't see our sin-marred past. And there are so many other things that we've talked about that this book has revealed to us as to what the gospel is doing in us and through us, how the gospel is transforming us by grace to live for Jesus Christ. And I would say that today is not much different. In fact, I think there's a very well-known passage in Scripture, at least in part, we know exactly what it is that we are about to hear in ways and manners. But in Galatians 5, 16 through 26, Paul thus pushes us forward again, calling us to a deeper and more rich faith, one that bears much fruit. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open to our passage today, which is Galatians 5, 16 through 26 can also be paid, found on page 1015 in your pew Bible. But this is what Paul had to say to the Galatians about walking by the Spirit. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, 
You are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, as you have delivered the word to us this morning, I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to hear what it is that your spirit is speaking. God, that in a manner that this passage would push us deeper into relationship with you in the knowledge of who Jesus is and that it would magnify him in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our bodies. And so, Lord, as we come to you today... I pray that you would glorify yourself by your spirit and that you would make very little of me so that your word might be heard. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, before we really dive into the passage, I just want to start with a little bit of an anecdote that might kind of show us or paint for us a picture of what it is that Paul is trying to get at this morning. And I feel like I've maybe shared with you before, but the truth of the matter is that I am a brown thumb. And if you don't know what that means, that simply means that uh, anything green in my life, that is a plant of some such, um, I kill. Um, it goes brown. Uh, it does not stay green in any way, shape, or form. But when I first moved to Griffin, um, someone in the church gifted me with a very lovely housewarming gift. Uh, it was a fiddle leaf fig. And let me tell you, I was in love with this little fiddle leaf fig. It was so cute. It was really small. And, you know, it was just an opportunity for it to grow. And I was so excited. And I was really honestly desperate to keep it alive. I wanted this thing to thrive and live because I was going to prove to myself that I was not, in fact, a brown thumb, <clears throat> but I was a green thumb. And so I asked this person, like, about this plant and what it needed, and they pretty much said, like, it's, it's pretty hardy. It'll live on its own. Like, you know, just make sure it's watered and getting enough sunlight, and, and it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And so I was excited, and it was surviving for a long time, and it grew about, you know, like, like I don't know, three feet high. Like, it started to grow, and it started having, like, all these leaves, like, blooming on it, and it was, it was awesome. I was super excited that it wasn't dying, and then one day I looked over and realized that I had maybe neglected it a little too much, and the leaves had started to brown some, and I was like, oh, no, I've got to do something. I've got to do something, like, um, let's, let's get it some water, it's going to be fine, it's going to survive, like, and, and then it, it, it wasn't. And I was like, okay, what if, I, what if I 
bring it into a different space and move it and, and hopefully I'll be more caring for it. Like I'm gonna have to walk by it every day. And so I'm gonna be like, oh yes, I need to water you. You need, you need thirst. Um, and so I was, I was being more intentional and yet somehow it was still falling apart. In fact, one by one, the leaves on my fiddle leaf fig tree started to fall off. And so this three foot high fiddle leaf fig tree, after about a month's time, was just a stick in some dirt, and there were no leaves left, and I was sad because I realized once again I had killed another green thing. The brown thumb moniker rang true, but I wanted to bring it back. I really wanted to see if there was anything that could be done, and so I did some research and I studied about fiddly figs, and I was like, okay, what are the things that I can do? And I was reading about all these things, and so I started to implement those things and cultivate this new opportunity for this tree to come back to life. And so I nurtured it, I tended to it, I moved it into a different space so it would get even more sunlight, and I was making sure that it was thoroughly watered all the time and making sure that it had enough sustenance for it to begin to grow. And you see, it had been this three-foot-high thing, and then it told me to cut it back, so then it was like this like one-foot-high thing with nothing on it. And, but then after like a week's time, like there were like these little tiny little green buds on it. And I was like, oh my goodness, it's happening. And then after a month, like they had, those little buds had become like, like little four inch round leaves. And I was like, oh, it's happening. It, it's actually working. And then after two months time, it now has these big leaves that are like the size of my face. And it's got like 20 of them on there. And it's like the most exciting thing to have this plant come back to life, to see that the work of cultivation, that putting in some effort toward it, actually let it live and flourish. But why do I say all that? What does that have anything to do with what Paul is talking about? Well, Paul was talking about fruit in the passage today. And so in a manner of speaking, he's speaking in terms that are relatable to what it means to grow something. And in my life, I have found, and maybe in your life as well, you have found that your, your, your faith walk goes through these moments of thriving and moments of waning, days where your faith feels like it's unwavering and other days that it feels like it's falling apart, days that you feel like you're giving in to your fleshly desires and days that you feel like you're walking by the Spirit. It's kind of like a roller coaster going up and down and up and down and up and down. And it can feel like, when is the ride going to stop? I cannot take this anymore. And in the same way, you look at my plant and it could very easily tomorrow have all of its leaves fall off again if I'm not constantly attending to its needs so that it could continue to flourish and flourish and flourish. But we see that in our faith walk, this constant tugging back and forth between the flesh and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit. And today, Paul is speaking to that exact thing. How is it that we as Christians live our lives constantly in this tug of war between the flesh and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit, knowing full well that we want to live by the spirit? And yet somehow there are days that our flesh takes over. And so Paul actually opens our scripture today with 
the prescription to our dilemma. He says to us in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You know, reading that passage seems so simple. We just need to walk by the Spirit, and therefore we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh won't have a place in our life if we would simply just walk by the Spirit. It seems like simple obedience is all that is required for us to get out of the load of trouble that the flesh inflicts upon our lives. But I think there are some things that we can even just pull out of this passage. We see the word walk, and immediately we all jump to the word run. We think that we're able to run in the Spirit, and that we can just leave all the flesh things behind and immediately be where we want to be in Spirit. But it simply doesn't work out that way. Further, we can see that simple obedience, as we have all probably tried, is never enough to overcome the flesh. It's never enough to overcome that very thing that is pulling us out of the very things that we desire. Paul constantly talked about it in Romans, how he always does the thing that he hates. How the law keeps coming back into his life and forcing him into things that he would rather not do. So simple obedience isn't enough. Just in the way that simply at the beginning, wanting my fiddly fig to survive and to live was not enough for it to just will to live. There had to be something more done in order for that plant to thrive and survive and to flourish. Even though I want my fiddle-leaf fig to be six feet high with all the leaves that could possibly muster, I can't run it into that position. I can't will it to that place. It's something that occurs over time. And in the same way, we must walk by the Spirit, not run. Because if we run, we end up getting ahead of ourselves and we are no longer actually in the Spirit. We actually find ourselves in the very thing that we are trying to leave, the flesh. And so, what do we really face? The reality is, verses 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You see, the truth of the matter is that the, the flesh and the spirit are opposed to one another. They want different things. They're after different things. They have similar ways in which they might actually look and work, but they are opposites in what they're trying to accomplish. And in fact, the only way that we can see this is by looking at the original Greek and that word desire. Because really, that word desire means an overwhelming drive to, to fulfill one's wants. An overwhelming desire to fulfill one's wants. It's an over-desire, as Timothy Keller calls it. It's over-desire. It's not just desire, it's over-desire. And the way that we need to think about that is that, quite literally, the English cannot capture how much of a pull this desire is in our lives. And so the flesh over-desires. It wants an overwhelming fulfillment of that which it wants. 
But there's also something else that we cannot see in the English translations that are in the Greek. Because the passage actually says in the English, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. But in reality, the Greek writer never had that second desire in there in regards to the spirit. It should be better translated, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the spirit is against the flesh. Because the spirit can't over-desire. The, the spirit cannot overwhelmingly want something that is inherently idolatrous. To over-desire is to take something that is good and then pervert it to something bad. So the spirit can't take that which is good and turn it into something bad. And we'll get into that a little bit later when we get through this list of things that Paul provides. But quite simply, we have to understand that the flesh is working in overtime to work against the spirit because it is opposed to the spirit. But the spirit in its own way and own right, is working toward and against the flesh. You see, the Spirit does have passion, and it drives us. But, but here's the thing that we have to understand. The Spirit's passion and desire is one. Found in John 16, 14. The Spirit will glorify me. That's Jesus speaking. The Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, and declare it to you. So where the flesh can have all these overwhelming desires toward different things and passions and lusts of its own accord for its own self-serving purposes, the spirit only has one purpose and one desire, one passion. It is that Christ would be glorified and that he would reveal it within us. And so we see that when it comes to a flesh that is over-desiring, it's not going to be enough to just simply obey. And so Paul then gives us a snapshot of these desires of the flesh. He says, starting in verse 18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these things alike. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's point out that before Paul even goes into his list, he actually makes an interjection that seems kind of out of place. He's like, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And then he gives the list of all these things that the flesh wants to do, that the flesh over-desires in. But here is the reality. The desires of the flesh are actually under the law. Because the desires of the flesh are always self-seeking. They always want what they want. And therefore, they are subject to the law. But the Spirit is completely free from it. The spirit is free from the law and that the law has no binding on what it is that the spirit is capable of. We'll see again how this works out when we get to what the spirit does within us. But the flesh is always about these attitudes and actions. 
that follow forward when we give in to them. You see, the flesh is desirous because the law binds it to wanting to save ourselves. We're always trying to find fulfillment in the things that the flesh want. But quite simply, there is no fulfillment there. And so we find them in sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and so on. And so we notice that these attitudes and actions lead to us falling into this over-desire state. Quite simply, these attitudes lead to actions, right? It's not just a list of things that happen when we are in the flesh, but it's attitudes we carry in the flesh. Notice how Paul mentions enmity and strife and jealousy. Well, if we have those things, it will ultimately lead to fits of anger and rivalries. It will lead us to dissensions and to all these divisions that happen because it's the only thing that can happen when you want for yourself. The flesh only seeks itself in all things. And again, it's why that pull is so strong on our hearts. Why we can't just simply obey. But then Paul gives the remedy. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You see, here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus for each of us. That though the flesh is weak, the Spirit is willing. And in the Spirit, by His good grace, He will produce good fruit within us. And notice that the good fruit of the Spirit, they're not attitudes or actions, but they're marks of character. You want to know how to overcome the flesh? It's not through doing things. It's by becoming someone else. Paul wrote in one of his letters to the Corinthians that we actually become new creations in Christ Jesus. A new creation. We are becoming something unlike we were before. What is it that we are becoming like? Well, we're becoming more like Christ himself. We will look more like him in his image every day as we become more in love with Him as we follow and walk by the Spirit. And in doing so, the fruit of Christ will be born within us. And so as we become more like Christ, we become more loving, more loving toward God and more loving toward each other. As we become more like Christ, we become more joyful in all things, knowing that Christ is the center of our joy. We become more peaceable, knowing that no matter what is done against us, that God is peace, and he will set all things right. And I could go on and on with each of the fruit-bearing relations that are in the Spirit. But when we become more like Christ in these areas, then our attitudes and actions shift and change toward obedience. It's not that we pursue attitudes and actions in ourselves, but that the Spirit in bearing fruit changes our actions and attitudes all together. 
And so, let us also point out that at the very end of his list of the fruit, Paul then adds, and against such things there is no law. And I had to think about this one for a second because, again, I already spoke about how there isn't a law and how the Spirit isn't bound by the law, but, but what is his point by saying that the, against these things there is no law? Because every matter of the flesh is selfish. And it's the over-desire that drives it. But in the spirit, the desires and passions of many things are actually not inherently bad. Let me give you some examples from Paul's list. In the flesh. So the overdrive desire of the flesh to fulfill sexual desires becomes consumed with matters of immorality, impurity, and sensuality. But by the Spirit, God intended our sexual drives and desires to be fulfilled in the love of God and in love for our spouses. You see, that desire inherently is not evil. God instilled it within each and every one of us. But when the flesh takes hold of it and desires it more than it desires God, then the flesh transforms it and perverts it into something evil where the Spirit says it was always good. Another example is if you look at that list, it talks about how when the flesh gets involved in relationship building... It gets distorted because we become jealous of others and we want things that they have and we become envious within ourselves, which ultimately create these comparisons and rivalries and divisions and dissensions within us and against others. But in the spirit, relationships become something that are flourishing, a matter of sacrifice and in service of peace and kindness toward one another, there is no need for jealousy. And so in the Spirit, there is no law that can come against its fruit. For all good things are put in their proper place under Christ Jesus. Whereas the flesh can only distort and pervert them by placing them under the curse of the law. That finally brings us to the conclusion of our passage where Paul says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so here's where we get back to my analogy where we get back to the idea that simple obedience is simply not enough. Because Paul actually says that we must crucify the flesh. It's an intentional action. And crucify, that word, carries with it the full weight of the excruciating pain that Christ would have suffered on the cross. That is to say that our flesh will feel the full weight of it being crucified in our lives. And so as we try to get rid of it, it will fight and struggle against us. One of the ways that I constantly put this when I talk to my friends about sin's struggles is that I like to describe it as trying to starve the flesh. 
When we try to, when we starve ourselves, right, when we choose not to eat food, we feel that, that desire within us, oh, it's time to eat. We start to feel the rumblings of our stomach, and our stomach is fighting against us, saying, feed me. We start going through these hunger pangs. And the longer that we decide not to feed it, the stronger those pangs become. And our flesh will be the same way. As we crucify it in Christ Jesus, those, those fleshly pangs will, will fight against us and become stronger and stronger until one day they fully subside. But when those pangs come, what do we do? We remember to live by the Spirit and to keep in step with Him. Keeping in step with the Spirit again goes back to that first message that Paul gave us in this passage, that we are to walk step by step with him. And so let us return to again this analogy of the fiddle leaf fig. It was once thriving, and then it died. And now it is surviving again. But it was a labor and a process that was hard, and it took time, and it took effort and, a, and attention and intention. You see, Paul uses this fruit language for a reason because our walk in the Spirit is the exact same way that these fruit that we are cultivating within us by the Spirit is a process of, of pruning and attending to the things that allow the fruit to grow. But I simply can't neglect my fig again or it will die again. And that's kind of, again, what, we ha what happens in our faith when it's doing this roller coaster effect is that We'll attend to it for a short amount of time and then we'll neglect it for a short amount of time and we'll attend to it again and then we'll neglect it again and we keep doing this up and down and up and down. And, but if we want to walk by the Spirit, it is a walk. And it's a steady progression forward. And let me clarify that this is how we see the fruit actually grow in our lives. Fruit grows in our lives because we are pursuing Jesus. I've used this passage again and again and again, but I use it again and again and again because it is important. John 15, 4, Christ says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch, us, cannot bear fruit, so the fruit of the Spirit, by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. If we want to bear more fruit, better fruit, and we want to see that the flesh in us is crucified, then we have to abide in Jesus. We have to look at Jesus. We can see Jesus and only Jesus. And then, only then will we be walking by the Spirit in our lives. That he might produce good fruit within us. You see, here's the thing, no matter how much I willed it, no matter how much I wished it, I could not make a single leaf on that fig grow. All I could do was tend to it, cultivate it, do what needed to be necessary in order for God to make it grow. And in the same way, in our spiritual walk, in our faith, to see the fruit of the Spirit thrive within us and to see the, the flesh uh, uh, within us be crucified, we have to do the exact same thing. We have to tend to it, care for it. And the way God says that we do that is by abiding in Him by looking at him, by focusing on him. And when we focus on him, the fruit just comes. And so the good news for us, for our lives, is that 
It's not impossible. But it is actually very much possible for every single one of us to bear the good fruit of the Spirit. But like anything that grows, we can't expect results tomorrow. But in time, as we tend and care in the manner that Christ has called us. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, we know that you are working in each and every one of us. And Paul has made it so abundantly clear that the fruit of the Spirit is so willing. But the flesh is weak. And so God, let us turn to you, abide in you, see you, acknowledge you. Just focus on you so that we can see the fruit grow within us, the very fruit of the Spirit that you so desperately want within us to happen, to occur, that we might become people that see and attend to those that are around us in more loving ways, more joyful ways, more peaceful ways, more kind ways, more gentle ways, and in more self-controlled ways. And so, Lord, let us see you and let the Spirit within us glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.